All right. So what are you up to these days? Me? Yeah. You know, writing, podcasting, making videos in my garage and being pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So... Have you like have you become right wing because that's what people are saying? All the comedians apparently are like right wing now, and yeah. um, and basically anyone on on Twitter who's like used to be like a liberal is now right wing. Yeah. I mean, I I think that it's a fair criticism to say that I've moved um, to the center, although I think. A lot of that is the culture moving to the left as well. I don't think I've, I don't, I haven't really changed many of my, you know, I'm not suddenly like uh, insanely pro-life and against gay marriage. And (laughs) what does it mean to be right wing? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I think, I mean, no no problem. These days I think it, it means, um, you know, challenging the status quo almost just like anything that challenges what is the mainstream narrative is treated as right wing. Yeah. That's why I think I was joking about this on Twitter just last week. I'm like, comedians didn't become right wing. The left just went insane and there's too much, you know, good material for us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I don't, I know that people will push back against that as well. And somebody was like, no, comedians were always right wing and now they're just revealing themselves or something like that. But I'm not sure I really fully understand what it means to be right wing or left wing these days. Because when people accuse me of being right wing, um, what, what do they mean by that? Culturally, you know, like on policy, I, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, am I for limited government? Yes. <laughs> I live in California. <laughs> and I, I think there's too much government. Um, and I, but at the same time, I really think, uh, do I think there should be universal health care? I want people to have good health care. I'm not exactly sure. I, again, trust the government to make sure that happens. Our government, at least. Um, so, and I'm not like some policy wonk who's a genius at all this stuff. I'm pretty much some kind of idiot who like stumbled into the culture wars. <laughs> so when people are like, she's right wing, I'm like, whatever. Like, okay, define me however you need to define me to make yourself feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's it's gotten crazy. We're like, um, Dave Chappelle is like a white nationalist now. I mean, like yeah. the, the, the description of people, like the, the stuff that came out about Joe Rogan, you know, saying like he's right wing and all this. I was like, I listened to Joe Rogan and he's certainly not right wing. Like not from like what I've heard over the years. He's like a Bernie bro. <laughs> <You know? laughs> are, are Bernie bros right wing now? Because they, they are a little bit more, um, they push back against it's, it's interesting. So I asked recently on my dumpster fire show for people to tell me their moment that they were quote unquote red pilled or purple pilled or whatever pill they might be taking. And do you know all the colors of the pills? Cause I don't like, I don't know. I know a few of them. Like Michael Malice has, has taught me some of them, but like, I don't know all the colors. <laughs> I mean, purple pilled, I think is really where I end up landing. 
And just in that I don't really identify with either dominant tribe. Even like the Super Bowl is a perfect example of when mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not right wing. Like the way she responds to the right will res- clutch their pearls about the freaking halftime every <laughs> yeah. single year over the Super Bowl. I'm like, oh, thank God. All right. I'm, I don't belong with you. Did, did you see Charlie Kirk called it sexual anarchy? <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was like, what? what? But I everyone don't... was dunking on Charlie. So I was like, unity at last. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. Like, um, and then, and then I had said that you know I thought it was the best halftime show I've seen, and I know people come in and they say Prince or Michael Jackson and all that, and that's and and I'm fans of both, you know. But I really liked what they did this uh, this year, and um, I came onto Twitter and said that I thought it was maybe the best one ever, and people were calling me woke, and I was like, <laughs> I was like. What? What was what was woke about the whole thing? And it, apparently, it's be. I guess it's because Eminem kneeled, and <laughs> that's what, that's and what I didn't even. So you know, well. like to show you like how little I'm thinking about that stuff. Like when Eminem kneeled, I didn't even think about it. Like it didn't even I didn't, like. I didn't even notice that he kneeled. Yeah, it didn't even. Cr- I was looking at his Air Jordan threes. Like I was like, <laughs> I was. I was like, those shoes are so sweet. And I think that, it's so funny. The Eminem thing cracks me up. I was talking to this really great Twitter follow of people don't follow him, Clifton Duncan, and he was on the podcast recently. It hasn't gone up yet on my walk-ins welcome. And we were talking about Eminem and kind of Eminem going woke. He had that moment where he <laughs> yeah. came out in the garage and was going hard against Trump. And he and Clifton was like, Don't doesn't Eminem realize like Trump was talking to his people? You know, like <laughs> was like yeah. to him and his like where he comes from and it's it's just funny that he's gone i mean that guy talk about talk about uh talk about a rebranding and a pivot the likes of which we will never see in our lifetime <laughs> this is like angelina jolie going from drinking her like kissing her brother and wearing a vial of blood around her neck to like a un you know representative and (laughs) and, like godly mother figure it's just crazy how he i'm like you he had some of the most controversial lyrics and songs ever (laughs) violent and crazy and now suddenly he's like some moral arbiter in our society it's just all of these people crack me up i can't yeah. take any of them seriously yeah i know and i was and i'm a i'm an eminem fan i mean he's from so michigan I- he's a michigan guy and you know i uh, grew up on on that music and on actually like the whole halftime show basically right yeah. so it's like it was for us <laughs> right that's right it was <laughs> it was made for us and so i guess that's sort of why like when i watched it i was like yeah this is like this is like my kind of halftime show because it did remind me of like, you know, I'm in high school and I'm, I've got it like, yeah. a, I've got the, you know, the disc changer in my car. <laughs> I've got like Snoop Dogg in there and, yep. and, uh, and Dre or Eminem. Like that's, that's like what I had. And so, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, I was good. I watching it with a bunch of boomers and they were like, does anyone like this music? And my husband and I were just like <laughs> bumping to it. We're like, we love this music. We grew up on it. And the boomers were so funny. I was talking about Dre's beat 
Like this is probably the most iconic beat ever made in the yeah. history. And just the guy was a genius and my my boomer relative in the room was like, What's a beat? I'm like, yeah. Okay. It's why it's worth a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, the one The one who surprised fifty cent looked different. Like he did look different. I had, I guess I hadn't seen him in a, seen him in a while and I don't know if he put on some weight or what his deal was, but he definitely looked like a, a different guy. I, mean, I, but for, I was like, I was watching that and I thought it was so perfect for a, a California Super Bowl, you know, yeah. the, the perfect lineup of people. And it was, I was looking at how I'm like, all of these people are so rich, like so <laughs> insanely rich yep. and particularly Dre and Snoop. And I think of when they were first coming around and how much crap they got and what they put up with and what that scene was like and um, how how like far they've come and how they've managed to endure. You know, they've got longevity. These yeah. guys are, they weren't like flashes in the pan at all. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just, I'm like, this is so inspiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, so inspired by that halftime because it's, it's, it was the same way I felt about JLo and Shakira. Like they're both worth together. Those women are worth like well over a billion dollars. And yep. these are women who just danced and worked their butts. I, they worked so hard and danced so hard and, sing and i was watching that stupid j-lo movie that i love marry me that just came out and i'm like this woman is like a triple threat yeah (laughs) she's so impressive to me did did you see that story where um new york post said uh snoop was smoking weed before his performance and i was like i was like it would be weird if snoop didn't smoke weed before his performance right like <laughs> like what? Who what were they expecting? That? I don't know. Like it was, that was such a weird take. Uh, I was like, um, a story <laughs> where he didn't smoke weed would have been a real story. Like, like Snoop doesn't <laughs> smoke weed before. Then, then we'd all be like, what? And we, and we'd have to ask, like, why didn't you? Like, what? <laughs> what's going on? So, yeah, you know. very, that's like when the right gets really pearl clutchy about things. It always cracks me up because. They're a little bit able to be there. It's funny watching the right be like, particularly these kind of conservative figures have this moment where like, for once they're kind of the cool kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For one moment they're sent, they're feeling that taste of like having some cultural cool currency, which I don't think has really ever been, associated with the right and they're kind of clean you know people like dave chappelle and anyone who's pushing back is suddenly now deemed right wing and the right's like yeah we'll take them that's yeah awesome. take, hey, that's look amazing they're taking so, any celebrity anyone anyone who is like formerly you know viewed as being from the left the the right's like yeah that's ours now <laughs> we like we'll take Dave Chappelle. We'll take, it doesn't matter what any of them said like ten years ago or fifteen years ago about anyone on the right or what they still say today. Actually, today, yeah, no like I'm still I mean, taking pot shots at the right constantly, right? But they seem to be able to kind of. I will in their in to their credit. Well, they can take it, you know. Like, mm-hmm. 
this is something that I was used to. I thought the left was like able to kind of laugh at themselves and make fun of themselves. And that's kind of the weirdest, one of the weirdest shifts is this sense of righteousness that blinds one to the ability to laugh at oneself, which I thought was, it's like, to me, just a fundamental aspect of being a functioning human (laughs) and so necessary to being a balanced human is, is, and the way partially the way I was raised was like, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. You just have to, Yeah, you can't take yourself too seriously. And I don't think Twitter is like a real place. You know, the people who are on there, it's like, it, it caters to the more extreme views or whatever, but it's, it's just true that you see a lot of people from the left on there who do take everything so seriously and um, they really are not having it with anyone who has different values from them. <laughs> like, like if you have slightly different values, you're suddenly, you know, um, you're a racist or, you know, you have no place in society. We need to get rid of you. And I, I just don't understand that. Like I can't relate to it at all because I grew up being taught that we're all from different places. We're all from different backgrounds. We have different experiences and people are going to have different positions and ideas. And, um, and that's a good thing. It's like a good thing because we all come from different places and that doesn't mean that people can't be wrong about things. There are people who are wrong about all sorts of things. And I disagree with people on the left and the right, but I, I value because I was raised this way, I guess I value hearing different perspectives and just having a conversation. And if I disagree with someone, I'll explain to them why I disagree and then try to persuade them. And if I don't persuade them, then that's okay. Cause that's, yeah. you know, that's like life. Yeah. I mean, I'm wrong all the time and people are always calling me out on it. <laughs> and it's, it's, um, I, it's very much, uh, I, I find it. I at least like having my, the ability to put my ideas out there, if not only to have them challenged and have people. And I definitely know that I ride that annoying, um, the, like the kind of John Stewart. I'm just joking when I'm making jokes about things politically, even though sometimes I'm serious and sometimes I'm yeah. not. And I kind of flip flop back and forth between I, but I, and when people say that to me, they're like, oh, you can't make this statement. And then be like, I was just joking. But I'm like, yeah, but I'm not expecting anyone to do that seriously. <laughs> I mean, but, maybe John Stewart was, but I definitely don't. I'm, it's like on, on Dumpster Fire. We're always like, this is not a news show. Please don't get your news from us. We're begging but you. You'll see online that people do not accept that now as like uh, an explanation. Like if people say like, you know, you don't have to take me seriously or I'm not an expert at whatever, like they're, they're not having it. They're like, no, you shouldn't be allowed to talk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or if like, you, well, you're responsibly using your platform. Like there's a right. sense that you should be, um, you have to be an expert at everything. I mean, the, the number of things that have come and gone to the people, I, you watch it, you watch everybody just kind of move. I always used to say on Twitter that like trending equals flocking. Mm-hmm. Because you do just watch 
the flock move to wherever the next news cycle is and then they're over it and suddenly they're experts on Ukraine, but tomorrow <laughs> it might be nuclear power and yeah. then the day after that they're going to be experts in in like the historical context of <laughs> of Snoop Dogg in the rap community and, and it all it seems so I it's hard for me not to it's hard for me not to laugh at the absurdity right isn't that one of the best parts of Twitter that like anytime something novel something new comes out within like 24 hours everyone's like oh idiot didn't you know like x y or z about this subject like they're always there to like give you their their take as though they learned about it you know much much before like a few hours ago themselves you know like they they just read about it and learned about it and they're like you're the idiot for not knowing a very small percentage of the population knew what epidemiology was like three <laughs> years ago. <laughs> or or Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and probably can't identify it on a map, and that's always the case. And and then there's like the, you know, the funny thing too is uh, the we live in a society, that meme, where it's like, if you if someone pushes back against something and then you you call them out for their hypocrisy or in my case I like to mock people for their hypocrisy but we make fun of our own hypocrisy even on our dumpster fire show constantly um, just how funny it is that I'll be like yelling get wrecked China for whatever <laughs> segment it is and then it's like I'm aware I'm like head to toe in China. You know, like, <laughs> this is probably head to toe China in, in my life. And it's so hard to get out. Like there's, there doesn't seem to be a way to live in the society we live in without <laughs> being a massive hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> you, unless you like go off the grid and make your own butter and, and everything from scratch. I'm not sure how you can, how you cannot appear to be just a massive hypocrite every minute of your life in the society that we live in. It's so hard. Well, there's a lot of it on Twitter. I I do my best to to avoid that. You know, people are always coming at me with, um, you know, when did you say this while Trump was president? Or like, when did you say this while (laughs) Obama? And I've always got like the receipts where I said the same exact thing. I've even like sometimes tweeted, (laughs) I've tweeted identical language and then looked at the difference in responses. And it's shocking. Like, like if I tweeted something about, you know, the executive branch having too much power, the president doing something unconstitutionally or whatever. And it could be just a general statement of principle. Like it's not even specific to any incident or any president. But I tweet it up, I tweet it under the Trump administration and I'll get like 100,000 likes and everyone on the left is on there saying, thank you. Like, yeah, Congress needs to reassert its power, et cetera. And then I'll I'll do the same thing under Biden. And then the same people come in and they're like, no, you don't know how tough it is being Biden. Like he's doing the best he can. You know, Congress is good for nothing. Why are you why are you saying they should like resume power over this topic or whatever? So it's like it's like shocking the like you do see like this hypocrisy everywhere around you in life. And it just it is, I think, hard for people to avoid it because bias is so prevalent first of all like it's hard to avoid that bias in the world Um, people people have viewpoints and people tend to live in the moment like just 
you know, what is it in the moment that uh, drives your position? And it's hard for people to get out of that mindset. Like just it's to, so hard. just to think about like, um, you know, is the thing I'm saying now something I would also say a few years from now? Uh, it's like, they don't care, you know? Yeah. There's, a, I mean, you're, it reminds me of, um, this great quote in the righteous mind where Jonathan Haidt is talking about, I was like, I need this as a tattoo. And it's all <laughs> about just how we're all hypocrites. We are indeed selfish hypocrites. So skilled at putting on a show of virtue that we fool even ourselves. I'm like, tattoo it on my face. <laughs> <laughs> so do you read the replies on Twitter? Like, Not really. Yeah. Sometimes some get through, but um, and some people that, you know, that I follow and like, I, I don't like to not read them because sometimes there's really funny, really witty, really hilarious mm-hmm. and good stuff. Um, people tag me all the time for stories for dumpster fire for whatever. So I, I see some of that. Um, I, I guess I'm, you do build up like, a um, immunity to yeah. a lot of that. Um, I think over the years, it, there's so much noise that if I paid attention to all of it, I would never get anything done. And if I internalized it, I would certainly not be a good, uh, I, I wouldn't be in a good place. I just don't think that it's healthy to, to read most of the things that are just bad faith the people who follow me and hate me are always such a like mystery to me. I, I just, I, there's nothing like that in my life that I can even compare it to where I just yeah. obsessively focus on something that I hate so much and spend hours of my life consuming their content just so I can hate it. Right. Very, I get that too. Sort of like hate followers. I'm like, I'm like, why are you following me? Like what, what is the point? Like I, just so you I can think, wait to wait to say something mean to me. Like yeah, I think it's, I feel like they think that they're you know maybe upsetting you or maybe maybe it's just to point something out to the larger audience, which or or like what do they call it? Clout chasing if they're if they're just dunking on you to try and get attention. Um, all of it to me feels so sad. Yeah. <laughs> it just feels so sad. I'm like, why go, go learn how to play an instrument. And <laughs> if you're going to do this, like write a song of hate about me. And instead <laughs> of writing a thread, which is going to go, no, it just seems, and it's not pity. It's just, I just, I feel like I have a lot of empathy or compassion or something for whatever the reaction they're trying to elicit out of me, it it's always just like, I want to hug the person no matter how mean they might be to me, because it seems, um, that seems like such a, a negative hard way to go through life. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I have enough of like the trolls in my own head that I have to deal <laughs> with that. I'm like, Oh, you think you're going to say something worse to me than I say to myself on a daily basis. You literally have no idea what it's like to be an addict in recovery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it doesn't really get you down to read that stuff, right? Like, I mean, is it because you've it built will. up, you've built up like sort of, an immunity through other tough times like that you've experienced. Yeah. It makes me, if it gets me down, it, 
it makes there <laughs> sometimes it does sometimes there's like one and those are the ones that I do pay attention to because I feel like that if it is something that is bothering me it might be striking a nerve that is there's some truth to what they're saying mm -hmm. um there's that great Frasier episode where he has the um they're doing the they're like sampling all the people, whatever those things are called. And then there's one guy who doesn't like him and everybody else loves him, but he hyper focuses on the one guy that doesn't yeah. like him. He goes to his newsstand. He ends up accidentally like burning his newsstand down. It's a hilarious episode, but it, it made me so uncomfortable. And I was like, Oh, I, I do this. <laughs> there will be like a hundred people be like, I love this. And one person will be like, this girl's a grifter and a hack. <laughs> and that speaks to the part of me, particularly the imposter syndrome, that yeah. believes I am a hack on some level and that I'm a grifter on some level, whatever that means. I don't know what I'm – if I'm a grifter, I'm a horrible grifter, by the way, because <laughs> mama ain't rich. Um <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not doing a great job in the grifting, which also means not only am I a grifter, I'm a failure at grifting, which is really sad. <laughs> yeah. but, so is imposter syndrome something um, you struggle with? Oh, yeah. And, and you know, my therapist talks to me about this all the time, her fear with me on places like Twitter, where everybody's calling me garbage um, <laughs> every other week for whatever reason. She's like, we've been working for however many years on trying to undo this sense of worthlessness that you have from trauma, upbringing, whatever. Yeah. And she worries that places like Twitter are just a place where I get to affirm the idea that I already have about myself. So part of me feels bad for the people who are living in that negativity. But part of me also understands because... Um, I've, I've had to struggle with being in such a negative place internally, but it's just to me, the difference between being kind of outwardly destructive, like taking that out on the world or being self-destructive, my negative tendencies tend are more, um, self-directed. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, uh, as time has gone on, you've you've developed it. Like, do you feel more confident today or is it like just as strong? Like there's some struggle with just like, you don't deserve to be here. Um, you don't deserve to, you know, have any success or that kind of thing because of yeah. like having a rough childhood. Like you've sort of I, fooled, you've sort of fooled people. Like even, you know, like I, I can, I, I can't obviously relate to like your childhood and upbringing and all that, but can sort of relate, having become a member of Congress, can sort of relate to the idea of like, you know, sort of being a little bit in awe, like every day, like I was elected to Congress, you know, and like, am I supposed to be here? Like, is this, <laughs> is this, <laughs> you know, um, and eventually I, I sort of like came to accept just like from being in Congress and seeing the incompetence of my colleagues that like, yeah, like I'm, I'm more than qualified to be here and, and all that, but it is, a, it is something that like takes a bit to overcome. Um, yeah, I've never, thank God, been elected to Congress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to run? Like these days, <laughs> no. these days you can run no matter what, like your history or whatever. I like you can, politics. yeah. I hate them. <laughs> 
I don't find them inspirational or aspirational. <laughs> yeah. I moved out to LA to make people laugh, to write stories. I didn't, you know, I didn't come out here. Even the fact that I'm like, people will be like, oh, just another failed comedian who turned into a pundit. And I'm like, eh, they're not wrong. I mean, it's not like a failed comedian, but it, it is weird that I'm even in. I I was joking with someone the other day. I was like, God, I thought Hollywood was ugly. Like, punditry is the <laughs> most disgusting space of all time. And I say that coming from seeing, like, Hollywood over the years. And I definitely um, struggle to feel like I belong. in. But even saying that, there are so many people in the pundit academic this space politicians who have you know I've always been quite insecure about not getting a college degree and and at the same time proud of dropping out of college because I thought it was a waste of money (laughs) so yeah um what would you have studied if you were if you'd gone for a degree, did I you have something in mind? I dropped out because I was studying communications, which felt like a like a degree that you get if you don't really know what you you want to do in life, and you're just trying to get a degree. So you know, maybe I'm maybe I am just like a slippery slippery little marketer or something. Like <laughs> I don't know what I would have done with that degree exactly. Um, and and yet, I think. When I was younger, I really wanted, I had high hopes for myself to go to an Ivy League school and maybe study law or maybe study something that now even that, I'm like, that seems like a gross industry too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I don't, I think like the imposter syndrome comes from being around a lot of people who have degrees in journalism and poli sci and they've been you know i listen to people like matt welch who can talk policy all day and nick gillespie and they have this like long career studying this stuff and an institutional memory for these changes and are able to say the point out from the policy perspective which is actually even though it's much more boring i think more important and they can really look at these things and evaluate them from perspectives that I just don't have that awareness. And and so when I'm having conversations with people, even like yourself, I, I will ask myself what I am doing here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ask myself what you know what I'm doing because I don't know anything about podcasting, and, and here you are um, having a lot of expertise in it. And I don't really know anything, so I just I just kind of bumble along but you know my my whole view on life is you know when you start something you're just not going to be that great at it and that's okay Mm -hmm. like you just you you work toward being better like Mm -hmm. i i've looked at everything i've undertaken in life as a chance to improve myself and to become better and i don't try to think about like Am I going to, you know, start a podcast and be as good as Bridget Phetasy or Joe Rogan or something like that? Like, I'm just like who I am. And if I can make my podcast or whatever I'm working on better each time, then that's good. I mean, I've like, I'm on my third microphone, you know, in three podcasts just because the audio quality was so bad. And, and so like even stuff like that, just, just how can I improve this bit by bit? Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what I think about. And 
I don't know. It's, I guess it's easy to get down on yourself about things and say like other people are more um, successful or other people have more talent. What I found in my life, at least with a lot of people who have, um, you know, amazing educational backgrounds, et cetera, that, or they're like an expert in some field that it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is smarter, you know? And I think that's important to remember. Like if you focus all of your energy on one topic for a really long time, like math or some particular scientific field or literature or whatever it might be, yeah, you're going to sound like you are really smart. And I'm not saying that, that they aren't smart. Like people like Nick Gillespie, Matt Welch, these are smart people. So I'm not like, you know, you brought them up. So I just want to make sure in case they're listening, they know I'm not talking about them. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's, it's easy when you are hyper-focused in an area to seem like you are so smart at that topic, but actually you might not be like that intelligent a person in many respects. And, yeah. and there can be people who are both who are intelligent and, and experts at things, but it's not always the case. And I've experienced that a lot in my life, just with people I've interacted with. Like, they're a genius at something, and then I'll talk to them about another topic, and they don't know anything. And I'm like, Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I watched three Princeton graduates try and figure out how to work a basic stove, and I was like, Okay, so my guess <laughs> right. is you're not great at everything. <laughs> they just like couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, there's an Estonian proverb that I've really lived my life by. I think it's Estonian, I believe. <laughs> and it's the, the work will teach you how to do it. And dropping out of college and really kind of carving my own path in whatever way that took me and following life as it opened up and presented different opportunities has definitely reinforced that belief more and more. And particularly with things like podcasting, I mean, every Maggie, my producer, and she's my producer on pretty much everything. And also cousin, she and I laugh because she's your real cousin, my real cousin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we laugh at just, we didn't know how to write a script when we first came out here. And then we figured it out. We didn't know how we laugh at how we're just, so um bad we always are like oh well we can't figure this out and we feel like idiots but we know in three months we'll be like did you turn down the blah 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 like oh you need to boost the blah, blah. right it is true you just learn it and then there's always room for improvement and every single week because we don't have a professional team of people who are we're still very do-it-yourself and all of our stuff there's always some issue, particularly with dumpster fire. Like last week, for instance, it was the garage band kept crapping out. And so we had to reshoot segments, which is <laughs> a nightmare because you're in the flow and then you have to go back and try and capture that, those jokes or that momentum that you're in. And I'm just like, why am I doing this? <laughs> why are we doing any of this? Um, but it's, yeah, so Are you doing a lot of takes on that show? Like, are you splicing? No, like a, Okay. Oh, okay. Because I always wanted to take it on the road. So my rule was that we do one one take, one hour. Little, It always goes more than an hour. But we try to keep it around an hour so that if I ever wanted to take it on the road, we would be able to and not have to do like take pickups and takes and all this yeah. stuff. Um, and then we do – we used to do the ads in the middle of it. And now, like, it took us, I don't even know, probably 45 episodes – before maybe more 
before we're like, hey, why don't we shoot the ads at the end so we're not interrupting the flow of like all of the joke. It's every, we always joke that we're just a little bit slow. Um, it's always, and Maggie and I have created so many things and there have been years where we weren't creating or writing and those have been dark years for both of us. So I think we know that for us, it's really just the process of creating that we enjoy so much, whether it's a script or a YouTube show or a podcast, or we have three more projects we want to launch. And um, there's <laughs> a lot always, of stuff. There's just always more. It's And Maggie's always made fun of me that she's like, I always say too many notes. It's like in, in Amadeus where he gets that criticism that it's like too many notes. <laughs> I'm like, that's like my brain. I just feel like I have so many ideas and Maggie's really good at, at like, let's get one going, have it be consistent, have it be work out the kinks. And then we'll keep layering ideas on as we can manage them. So that whole, like the whole creative process has been, I I really love it. I chose, I chose this path so long ago and I was well aware by the time that I was 20, 21 years old, that it was the harder path. Mm-hmm. And I waited tables, you know, I was going through, I've been purging because I'm in like power nesting mode because I'm pregnant and congratulations. I found, thank you. And I found my most recent um, check that I got from waiting tables and it was from 20, 18, 2019. That's, that's 2018. pretty recent then. 2018. Yeah. yeah. So I was, I was still waiting tables and still trying to make ends meet and working tons of odd jobs and a lot of manual labor jobs and a lot of work on farms and um, kind of migrant work, if you will, to a certain degree. Um, and it, it was always, I was always aware that I was making that choice. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had given up like stability and a 401k and dealing with HR, which thank God, <laughs> um, <laughs> to have this kind of life where I got to create whatever I wanted and make my own stuff. But it, it was, it's been such a hard God, I was looking at going through finding these boxes. I mean, I came up with the name Fetacy for my company um, in 2001. So the idea mm-hmm. for this thing that I'm still stupidly going chasing, <laughs> which is supposed to be greeting cards, by the way, <laughs> still an idea I haven't given up on. That's 20 years old. And people will look at me and they're like, oh, this girl just came up in like three years now. Who, who the heck are you? Anyway, I'm like, if you want to take this path, be my guest. Yeah. No, I I know. That's like um, sometimes you, you got to have those goals in life and it takes a long time to reach them. And you go through oh. a lot of you go through a lot of things in the meantime. And they're uh-huh. never what you think, you know, yeah. it's never, it's never what, and I made so many mistakes. Like if people knew we ha- we did our taxes yesterday yep. and we were so organized and we've been going to the same accountant for years and he was so impressed with us. I have, I was like 
nothing my father has ever said to me, him, me <laughs> and my life made me feel the surge of pride as I got from my accountant being like, wow, guys, this is really great. <laughs> You're doing really well. You guys are doing really well. And this is so organized. And, <laughs> and we were both like beaming, like, you know, proud school children. And it's, but if you saw what a shit show it was, like when I was an independent contractor, I'd be in there for five hours with like a box <laughs> of receipts. And I went bankrupt when I was uh, 27 after I first started this company, Fetacy, the first iteration of it. And I was divorced. Like there, there was one year where on my to-do list, it was file for bankruptcy, get divorced. It was, I mean, I have those <laughs> notebooks still. On your to-do list, it said that. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really gnarly to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> and I have it. I was looking the other day. I was like, oh my God, this is a rough year. <laughs> yeah, boy, that this is tough. a really rough year. And I, I wasn't even 30 yet. And I had already gone bankrupt and been divorced. And, and mind you, during all of this, I'm kind of, I think, wrestling with addiction that I am trying to manage. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, I mean, it did, I feel bad for kids now because I think they think they have to like get it. We live in such a young mm -hmm. culture and people will be like, I'm 25 and I messed up or I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, you're so young. I didn't the rubber didn't even start meeting the road for me until I was maybe 36, 37 years old. And yep. people will look at my life and, and I have a great husband and I have a career that I love. But if you had looked at my life when mm -hmm. I was 23, 25, 27, 28, 29, 30, 32, 33, 34, you wouldn't, it's not like you would have been thinking this girl has it together. So I just wish yeah. people that weren't so put, didn't put so much pressure on themselves to like have made their first million on Instagram by the time they're 23 years old. <laughs> NFTs. Yeah. Right? NFTs. yeah. <laughs> like, I think it's so tough for kids these days because they're looking at social media and they're seeing people who look perfect on social media. Like all the people around them, they're, like curating like this world of perfection like look at the food i'm eating look at the clothes i'm wearing look at everything <laughs> i'm doing and these people so many of them like us you know like uh, human beings have problems yeah and you know we're but for a young kid who's you know 12 13 14 who's looking at that stuff they might be thinking like i've got all these problems and this person's life is so perfect and I think it's that can be. It's hard not to yeah. fall victim to that. I'm 43 <laughs> years old. I know this. I'm aware that I know because I have friends who post stuff on Instagram <laughs> and then I talk to them and I know the, the disconnect between their life and their reality. Yeah. Like the, whatever they might be going through and whatever they're presenting. And knowing this still, even in early pregnancy and seeing, I went down, I don't spend much time on Instagram, but I started realizing you can get a lot of great recipes on there and I love <laughs> cooking. 
And then I fell into like the mommy blog world. And it's so like, oh, they're so zen and so put together and they're connecting to their babies and they're eating nutritionally. And I'm like, I want Taco Bell and I want to watch <laughs> Ellen. Like, <laughs> right. am I just a basic mom now? <laughs> like, just, they don't have those influencers online. <laughs> right. Where's the, where's the basic bitch who's just like, give me some Taco <laughs> Bell and like turns on Ellen randomly and is crying. Crying on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. Right. Um, or the, the guy telling feel, dad jokes, you know. I didn't feel represented. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lack of representation. Instead, <laughs> they're all like, I got in touch with Gaia and had my baby in a pool in the woods, like <laughs> facing the moon. And I'm like, right. what? I, <laughs> I feel so, I feel so inadequate. And that is what social media particularly I think on Twitter, it's different. Everybody's kind of a piece of shit on Twitter. We all know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Instagram, Instagram's a different world. That's true. It's definitely like designed to make you feel inadequate. I was, the other feed that I cultivated, because I think this is just part of pregnancy and being um, a massive traveler that, I, that now I'm in the like, wanderlust phase of pregnancy so i started mm -hmm. watching all the travel videos but then you find out there are people who just like get paid to go stay in these beautiful places and they just <laughs> have to you know take videos and like eat good food i just I'm and then like, post wow. on instagram right and, and that's like on instagram and i'm like right. wow i really miss my calling is like a, <laughs> a vapid instagram influencer yeah, I'm, um, you know, I see that stuff from like my son will tell me, oh, like these people are making so much money on Instagram. Like it'd be like kids, you know, like making yeah. money on Instagram just from like doing kind of silly stuff. Like, yeah, like, telling me her youngest, who's like 13, she was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he's like, I don't know. I want to be famous. She's like, famous for what? He's like, it doesn't matter. I just want to be famous. <laughs> I'm like, this makes sense. If you're 13 years old and you look around the world, right. there are kids his age making bazillions of dollars on TikTok. Why yep. wouldn't he think that that's an available path to him? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like virality in any sense of the word would be that like five minutes that launches you into getting NFTs and, and selling crypto. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I... Even I can't figure out NFT. I've spent some time trying to figure out all the NFT stuff, and I'm not like totally sure what's going on. They're like, people, <laughs> like you get your own unique image, but like, okay. It seems like a, sometimes it makes sense to me, and sometimes it doesn't, and then sometimes I feel like it's just a pyramid scheme that I would be like at the bottom <laughs> at. And I have right. a friend who got into crypto really early, and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's totally a pyramid scheme. There's like ten people making money, and the rest of it, <laughs> everyone else is in the room." I'm like, "I knew it. Yeah, <laughs> I knew it." But it does. Then I see the benefits of of it being decentralized. But I'm like, is it really decentralized? Because governments still seem like they can come in and say they're going to take it. So I'm not really sure. And how can it be a currency if it's not stable? Isn't 
isn't like part of it being a currency. Don't you need the currency to be somewhat stable? <laughs> to serve I as a currency, it? yeah, ultimately. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, like, because nobody crazy. wants a currency that fluctuates like every day. Like, thirty no, percent tomorrow. And, and to be clear, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in crypto. Like, I believe totally. in decentralization, but like, it, it really doesn't serve as a currency right now. Uh, I mean, with the yeah. instability. I mean, I hope it's a path to a decentralized currency, but it seems like it's. I wouldn't be putting all my retirement in that. In that, you know. <laughs> But then again, I hear my. I know people I, who did. <laughs> yeah, and I talk and I talk yeah. to my tax guy, and he's like giving YouTube talks about crypto and taxes. So I'm like, okay, I guess if yeah. there's a tax guy working on this, then we we should take it seriously. Yeah, I ran into an acquaintance. <laughs> I ran into an acquaintance, and he was like, "Yeah, I sold everything, all my stocks, everything, and put it all in crypto, and, oh, and wow. he made a lot of money. You know, like so. Yeah. I don't know. It's just there are people who are." living that way and i don't know it's highly risky it's highly risky but (laughs) thinks he can just be like whatever and make bazillions of dollars because there are lots of people who are just doing whatever and making you know fortune and i'm i'm not one of those people (laughs) (laughs) well can we um should we take a caller you okay with that oh totally yeah all right let's go to um all right kusha Hello, uh, Justin. Thank you very hey, much. For, thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be in dialogue with you for the second time, and it's a pleasure to be in dialogue with uh, Bridget for the first time. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Um, so there's one thing that Justin mentioned during this episode, which was Ukraine, uh, as it pertains uh, likely to the recent escalations we've seen that's been the topic of much media coverage. And I'd really love to make a connection to those big power brokers in the United Nations. I really love the insight of both of you, um, both uh, femur- <laughs> Sorry, and uh, comedic. This might be when I go feed my dog. <laughs> comedic commentator who makes a lot of observations about society. Yeah, Bridget so, told me that she might have to feed her dog during parts of this. So <laughs> this okay. might be no. one. <laughs> so, oh, Ukraine? Well, let me tell you. I know absolutely nothing about this. Well, okay. So, well, sorry, Kusha, ask me. Uh, tell me the question again. I'll, uh, I'll, I didn't. I didn't even uh, get to uh, okay. Get yeah. back, but I'll, Go ahead. I'll do it right now. Thank you. So specifically about the specific um, five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, the U.S., U.K., Russia, China, and France. France, who definitely got the most carried among those major power winners of uh, World War II, and this unstoppable veto power, uh, which is extremely undemocratic and prevents significant action against these permanent Security Council members and their allies, which leads to a lot of horrible and egregious inaction when it comes to war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. And so today, published in The Guardian by Patrick Wintour, is an article about a super noteworthy and meaningful attempt being brought to the International Criminal Court by remarkable human rights lawyers like Gisunia. And, quote, in that article, it says, quote, it marks the first time Iranian officials have been targeted in this way for their, in a, for their activity in Syria. And it's part of a growing effort to make Syrian army officers and others legally accountable for their actions, either at the ICC or national European courts, including in Germany and France. Progress on the issue... All right, Kusha, can you get to the question, though? Because I just want to make sure we we have time for everything. Go ahead. Exactly. I'm about to get to it very soon. Progress on the issue at the UN is largely impossible owing to the threat of a Russian veto, end quote. So at the same time, the U.S. government only served to undermine even the mechanisms of the ICC with the Hague Invasion Act, 
signed into law in 2002 during the George Bush administration, which gives the president the authority to use all means necessary to bring about the release of any person described in its law um, who's uh, being tried, detained or imprisoned in the ICC. So I want to know your views on what I just stated, what should be done, and what's your analysis on what's already been done based on what I described? Yeah, I think you described too much there for me to give you an analysis right now. Um, so I think we're well, just going to have to agree that you can to the degree that you can. Well, what's just give me your a basic question, like a straightforward question. Sure. So what is your take on this veto power in the United Nations Security Council? And further, so that's part one of the question. And part two about the um, Islamic Republic being tried in the ICC for the crimes they've committed in Syria alongside Bashar al-Assad. And part three is about what the U.S. did with the Hague Invasion Act. Well, I don't know enough about the the part three. I do know that I uh, generally don't support the concept of an ICC. I think that the the problem with a criminal court is that there's no real enforcement mechanism because you have international players. And at the end of the day, if international players don't want to get, get along or play along, they're not going to. Um, so things things that happen in international law are are as a as a basic rule toothless because at the end of the day you will resort to conflict if you don't agree so i don't like i don't see how uh an icc would even work um as for having uh like a veto power um you know that's how the un's designed i'm not sure that it's a it's a good system um the idea of just a few members having a veto power, it's kind of like, it's kind of outdated at this point, um, having the same permanent members have these, have these powers, but you know, it's the way it is. And, uh, I guess I can't redesign, uh, the entire UN on Colin. So we'll, we'll go to the next caller. Okay, sure. Thank you. For All right. Thanks. Jeff. And I've done it properly, um, getting the trend going on Colin here with the mute versus leave. Um, no problem. So I've got a question for you and for Bridget. So I'll start with Bridget first. Um, Bridget, thanks for the kind of overview. On- so just so you know, Bridget stepped away. So let, oh, let, stepped away. Can, so yeah, great. just for a Let's moment. Just for a moment. So go with me first. Sure. No worries. Um, so obviously, the Ukraine topic is is you know topic du jour, and we've got a lot of press that are you know, really work in the war machine to get everybody convinced we got to go to war in Ukraine, despite not being a NATO member, despite being way the hell far away from us, not a lot of strategic interest. Um, I'm kind of leading the witness here, but <laughs> what the hell are we doing in this conversation? And do you think it will, in, in the end, result in troops on the ground in Ukraine? Well, I don't know what we're doing right now. I really don't understand it. Um, it seems to me like every day or every other day uh president biden or the administration insists that there's some war that's going to happen and um they're the ones insisting it insisting on it and the other people i mean insist not insisting on war presumably but insisting on the fact that it's going to happen um and other countries are saying no we don't think so or you're being too hasty or stop ratcheting things up i I've always been a believer that if you want to prevent someone from doing something, don't say that they're going to do it. Like, it's very weird to me 
to want someone not to do something, but every day to say they're going to do it because you are essentially um, green lighting it. You're saying like, this is an acceptable form of conduct. It, it always struck me when people would say, you know, what kind of things ISIS might do or Al Qaeda or whatever. I was always like, why is the government saying they might do these things? Because it's almost like you're saying, we think these would be within like the norms of like humanity to do these kinds of things. And you're, you're kind of enticing them to take those steps. I think it's, I think it's foolish. Um, I, I think you should always, um, avoid the suggestion that someone is going to take whatever bad act you prepare for it obviously but when it comes to um troops the thing that i'm really worried about is that we're putting troops in eastern europe um and i don't see how you're going to keep them out of the conflict if if a bigger conflict arises and these troops are not authorized to be there by anyone in congress you know like our our system of government is such that Congress decides whether we go to war. And for those who keep saying, well, just look at the NATO treaty. The NATO treaty says we have to defend our NATO partners. Sure. Um, the NATO treaty does say that. However, our constitution says Congress declares war. So both things can be true. You can have a treaty that says we are obligated to help our NATO partners, and you can still have the requirement that Congress decides whether you actually do help them when push comes to shove. Uh, because that's the only way that is that's compatible with our constitutional system. It, it, no, no question about that. And it, related to that, like, it, and Bridget you, is back, by the way. If you've got something for her, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll finish up with you, then then get to her. Hopefully, know, it's something more it. more fun and exciting than, than yeah. Ukraine. Oh, okay, go, well, you know, go ahead. To- topical issue. You happen to be in Congress. There you have it. So, yeah. All right, Bridget, you're here. Um, so you gave us a good overview of kind of where you're at personally at this point pregnant um podcast all of it and your uh your the changing political spectrum around your views on things uh i have a question about your stand-up part of your career uh, are you still doing that is that something you've given up on or is that you know just temporary get this watermelon out of you and then move on to it um that's a good question i it was something that i stepped away from and, and not away from i was still doing it and 2019 all the way up to really the pandemic but i i had stopped grinding as hard as i was grinding because other aspects of this um started taking off the podcast was taking up more time i was making more money writing and then just from a time you know i had a, a kind of business advisor who was like you time is your basically only most valuable resource that you have as an entrepreneur and particularly a creative and you have to really start making some hard choices right now about where you want to spend that time and so i ended up just deciding to put more of my eggs in the basket of growing my online audience instead of um working on the stage because in la in particular You'll drive an hour to do three to five minute sets and it is absolutely a grind. And um, then the pandemic hit. So that was kind of a fortunate pivot that I made before everything got shut down. So when when everything shut down and um, Dumpster Fire, my YouTube show, is really an outlet for a lot of that kind of stand-up material that I would have been doing on stage or testing on stage. And 
when the pandemic shut down, we already had a show that was fully functional in my house. I already had a podcast that was going. So I was in a pretty good position to just nothing changed for me, really. Everything just kind of got busier. But I do dream about being on stage and miss being on stage and fully intend to return to getting back on stage. Right now, it's kind of like I'm dodging uh, COVID as well, just being pregnant, just trying not to be in too many settings around a lot of people. Um, yep. So, That's very helpful. Yeah. I got I got one more for you related to it. Um, it for anybody on this call that might be interested in stand up at this point, given all the changes and you know clubs being shut because of COVID and you know the move to so much on YouTube and and call in for that matter. Um, what would you recommend if you were to advise like one thing to focus on if you were just starting out? Um, as like specifically a stand up. Correct. Ah, man, there's no way to cheat that time on stage. That's the hard thing. You know, even if I, even though I've been doing like ostensibly bits that I would run in my, in my shows and whatnot, I, it's still such a different muscle getting on stage and talking in front of people. So I think the choice you're making as somebody who might be in um, a position to be cultivating your craft as a stand-up comic or your audience online. And and by the way, you know, writing jokes on Twitter and stuff like that, there is like an art to it. You will get better at writing jokes if you're doing these things. But I really don't think there's any way around like, picking up that microphone and getting on stage and working out your material. Yeah. Awesome. You just have to, it's like driving, you know, you can't just like <laughs> think your way into driving. You've just got to do those hours. Go and do it for sure. Um, the last, because the last caller, uh, filibustered, I think is the term. Uh, Justin. So <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to get the fuck off the stage. So thanks. Both of you. <laughs> thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. So, how long have you been doing stand-up? Like, when did you start that? I started in 2010. And uh, then I was I was really properly, like, I have records of all my mics. And it was, I was properly out there grinding for many years. But then I left and traveled the world for two years in 2012 mm-hmm. and 2013. So I wasn't doing much stand-up then. And I came back and again was really going at hard at it. And then I think it was around 2015, I got my gig writing a weekly column at Playboy. And a weekly column to all those folks out there who have them, it is a grind. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Like I would file and basically be like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the kind of column I was doing where I was interviewing people and getting, you know, feedback from lots of my. Oh, you had to do. I, yeah, you had to do interviews. So that's like. Well, not interviews, but I'd be like, hey, we're going to write. I'm going to write a column about balding. Do you have any. <laughs> how do you feel about balding? And then I have hundreds of emails I had to sift through and try and make sense of and. Sometimes it would be something that required a lot of research. Sometimes it was more just an opinion. But I think I, I think I had a really great editor, Joe Donatelli. He's my f- just brilliant editor, and he said all great columnists are journalists. And I, because I was like, <laughs> I didn't sign up to be a journalist here. I just wanted to run my mouth like I do on stage. 
And that wasn't really the case. So it was like a completely different muscle that I was learning. And I knew nothing. I knew, again, talk about like the work will teach you how to do it. I didn't know what a graph, what all the terms in publishing. I knew nothing. And I learned a lot. And I learned a lot from the men that I was interviewing over those years. But it definitely diminished my ability to go on stage. And then I started kind of speaking out honestly, I, this is when 2015, 2016, and I was getting unfollowed by fellow comedians and, um, just for kind of pushing back against the left or making fun of some of the left wing stuff. And, uh, so I got a little bit insecure about going, I was like, I, I didn't feel exactly welcome in, in the community. I don't, I think, and that could have just been my own insecurity from what was being reflected to me online but i do you think that's shifted by the way do you think it's become more accepting because like the left is like what's kind of funny these days i don't know Um, like it's i I think people have just loosened up because trump isn't in the white house so i think yeah then it felt like this existential you know this crisis that we were in and to even make fun even to like laugh at trump because of some of the stuff like I really think that guy wanted to be a stand-up comedian and just <laughs> and laugh at some of the ridiculous things he said was to like endorse a Nazi or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And now it's and now because that existential threat is at least not present in the White House at the moment, although it might be again. Um, <laughs> Maybe I'll. I don't know. If, do you think comedians are hoping he comes back or not? I don't know. Does he make comedy more difficult? I think in some ways, like, he makes it, yes. I think because everybody gets so, uh, they just get so tense. You know, it makes it, like I said, it's like this existential crisis, which was very strange for me because it went from comedians late night, everybody making fun of him. He was the punchline for a year, remember, leading up to the election. Comedians were openly saying, please run because this will be amazing. And then overnight when he secured the election or when he secured the nomination, he became literally Hitler. I'm like, you guys were joking about him last week, smugly. Like, he was no big deal and no threat. And now, suddenly, you can't joke about him. You can't laugh at him. Now, it's like, we have to, you know, unify in taking this guy down. Do you think but it's I'm because... Like, laughing at him. Yeah, like, do you think it's because it. they thought they thought he wasn't going to win? And so, they like... Didn't so he like win. Because I do remember that time, and they were, like... They were basically promoting Trump. Like a lot of people were, a lot of people on the left were essentially promoting Trump and saying like, like openly (laughs) begged him to run on his show before he retired. Yeah. He doesn't like to remember that, but he did. (laughs) Yep. So like, so, you know, they, they changed their tune pretty quick. I mean, it was like, we need this guy. Um, I think it's because they thought he'd be the one that Hillary could beat. And that was that. And I don't know that that never seemed like I, uh, yeah. a smart play for me. Like no, you know, from I my perspective, like you guys are going to joke him into the White House because I remember going home one year, and I've told this story before. And it was the summer after Brexit. I stopped through my very small New England town, and I was talking to 
family members and friends. And it came to my attention that I thought, because I thought everyone was just voting for Hillary. And it came to my attention that somebody who I never would have guessed was voting for Trump. And they were like, I'm just so fucking sick of late night talking down to me. And that moment was like eye opening for me. And also coming from Brexit and talking to a lot of people there from like I'd been in Ireland and I'd been in, in London and just having conversations with people. I took a train through the countryside and a ferry to Ireland. So I talked to a lot of people, working class, different and, and heard their perspectives on this and felt it felt a lot like the canary in the coal mine to what was going on in America to me. And then when I heard that from my kind of blue collar friend who I would have thought was on the team blue just because they were in a union and like it just seemed more in alignment um i was really taken aback and i came back to la i'm like we're missing something we're just missing something and i do i always thought people joked the night of the election they're like you're like the marathon runner that's hydrated because i was like trump's gonna win i just didn't I always thought he was, I also thought culturally our values were there. Like one of my tweets that I, I deleted, but was up for a while. Cause I always like, I'll just wipe my Twitter line. Cause I get too tired of all the clutter. And it was like Kim Kardashian made $75 million last year. Trump will be our president just because I felt like we live in that kind of society that yeah. values a reality star. And I think people were scared into telling the truth. So an environment was created in which people could not be honest about the fact that they might be thinking about voting for him. And how are you going to get honest polls and honest? No one was being honest. Yep. I'm like, these people are just going to nod their heads and be like, okay, whatever, and go vote for Trump. <laughs> yeah, I saw it coming, and, too. I mean, it, it, I, I don't or didn't represent a community that was particularly Trumpy, if you will, you know, it's a more like sort of modest sort of Republican. Um, and you know, it's a, it's sort of a middle of the road community in terms of Republican democratic breakdown. But uh, I could see just from holding town halls that people on the left were even coming toward Donald Trump, like, <laughs> or like it was, it was really remarkable. I'd go to these town halls and people I knew to be Democrats and especially union people were coming up and saying that they support Trump or they like Trump. And I was like, is this is interesting. It was like quite yeah. a shift. It was quite a shift from how they had talked at previous town halls. Because when you hold enough town halls, I don't know, it's maybe almost like stand up comedy without any of the jokes. Uh, <laughs> but like I start to see like certain people who just show up like at every performance, if you will. And, um, and they're there and they're, they're asking questions or commenting. And I start to see people who I knew like pretty well, like just from experience who had been from the left and suddenly they're for Trump. And I, I could see it. I could see it happening. And I had people upset with me. Like some of the donor community were like, what are you doing saying you're not supporting Trump, et cetera, et cetera. And like, you know, they'd get on my case and I'd say like, what are you guys worried about? Like, I think that he's going to beat Hillary. Like, you know, you're yeah. all up on, on me about like, um, how I'm not supporting Trump and that's going to hurt him. I'm like, I think he's got this. Like, I don't yeah. think like, and, and I don't even support him, but I thought he had it. And, and I really did not support Hillary. So like, you know, for me, it was like, um, I, I, for me, I felt like election night was going to be 
I was going to feel good about like one of them losing at least. So that was like, (laughs) (laughs) that was like, like I could, I was like, well, no matter what happens, either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton will lose. And I can go home feeling happy about that. Um, To to go back to the question, (laughs) the story I was going to tell you about the story I kept hearing being of people being red pilled. One of the most common stories I hear is the Bernie thing. Is is Bernie having the election basically or the nomination basically yeah. stolen from him? <laughs> and so many people were quote unquote red pilled by that moment. And I think Malice does a good job of explaining that red pill isn't like becoming a conservative or right wing. It's just opening up your eyes to uh, mm-hmm. the out the media narrative and then the world outside of it. And so I saw, I think a lot of the leftists that I've talked to and seen, and I'm seeing this even now with Biden. Uh, so there's, there is this like crazy strain of populism that is on, um, exists on both sides of the aisle. And that circle seems to continuously get closer and closer to one another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I know. On. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, people would, because I'm a libertarian, people would say in Congress, like I was, they viewed it as like so far to the right that it was like wrapping around again. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I don't, th- f- f- just to be clear, I don't think of libertarian as being right or left, but like, I see how people might think that. And, there were a lot of times when I was in agreement with someone like AOC because she would go like she was so far on the progressive end and I was on the libertarian side and it like sort of a wrap around and meet again. And we were the ones uh, along with a few others in Congress standing up. So you'd see these bills where it was something to like four or five. And what you'd end up seeing is like two or three like libertarian reps or libertarian leaning reps and then two or three progressives um who are the ones voting no and that was um that was increasingly common because you know like these the the people leading the two parties like the i guess the establishment of the two parties are so set in their ways and so unwilling to change or consider other people or to consider the um you know the the problems that people are actually facing it's to, to so many of them it's just about how can they essentially manufacture some kind of election win and that's <laughs> it and it's not like yeah. it has nothing to do with like biden will say whatever just like trump would or just like hillary would they'll say whatever just to get by and yeah. um and you know for trump he at least i think tricked a lot of people into thinking that he was going to be different ultimately on policies. Like if you actually look at the policies, he wasn't all that different from previous presidents, like whether it was um, war issues or the economy or the budget, like he's spending more than like anyone. So like a lot of that stuff was just bluster where he was saying things, but he did get people to buy into it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and it's not surprising people sort of went for it because the other people don't even pretend like, you know, Mitt Romney or Hillary Clinton. They're not pretending to like uh, care about the average person or like you know, or about the problems of everyday people. And 
And I can say that, and like, I actually stick up. I think Mitt Romney's probably a, a very good man. Like, I don't like, mm. you know, have any animosity toward him in that respect. But in terms of politics, I think he's just like, I don't think he's really connected with anyone. Yeah, there, there does seem to be more of the, the, the disconnect. I, it seems I'm seeing this more on the left than definitely on the right. Because I see all of these politicians, with some exceptions, as being enormously full of shit and really just maintaining the establishment. And there does seem to be like the elite class has pulled away from the working class in the in the United States, whatever that looks like, um, in in ways that are cultural and also just ways that are um, monetary. Just the the divide there and. I, um, I see like things like what happened in San Francisco with the school board is a good example where on the left, it seems like the rhetoric and the tribalism is falling apart a lot because in in Virginia, you saw with the school board and it does seem to be parents who are pushing back, but you can't look around at your city, the city I live in, for example, and say, everything is great when you've watched it deteriorate and increasingly over the course of a decade and rapidly in the past three years and say, and blame this on anybody other than the people who are in charge. And at a certain point, that disconnect between whatever the rhetoric is that the people who are the politicians are saying and the reality on the ground you're gonna, you're gonna, like, reality always wins. (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. You can't cheat reality. It will eventually catch up with you. And I think that San Francisco, there was such a great quote in the Matt Welch. It's, I used to say, I was like, someone like me for the, is the canary in the coal mine for what's going on with the, the left wing party. And leftists in general, and you're in the Democratic Party. I'm like, how could you lose someone like me? I'm a freaking stoner, writer for Playboy. How did you lose me as to become an independent? You, I was a just show up and pull the lever, blue voter my whole life. Not saying that's a great thing. I actually am glad that I've been. I was very lazy. I always say like I was in a self-driving car and I just was like, take me wherever. But it was like that Silicon Valley episode where he ended up in a freight train, like a freighter (laughs) (laughs) on a ship uh, to to an island. And there was such a good quote in this because I felt like it really explains what's actually happening um, it was like the last quote in his article today about the San Francisco school board. So for people who don't know this, there was a big recall and they recalled three school board members, which never really happens. And the guy who we interviewed at the end of this piece said, um, I've always thought of myself as progressive, but I don't use that label anymore to describe myself. Raj told me Monday, because when I see the people who call themselves progressive, and I especially see the elected leaders calling themselves progressive, they don't seem to stand for any of the values that I believe what progressive should be. It's not progressive to stand back and do nothing while the most underprivileged kids in our city have struggled and suffered the most. It is not progressive to put your own political career above the interest 
of the people you're supposed to serve. That is not progressive. All that I can see is that the movement that perhaps started with a lot of idealists in the 60s and the 70s and 80s is now filled with opportunists who only care about using progressive language to advance their careers, but have no interest, no desire to actually solve the real problems that our kids are facing today. And this reminds me what you we're just talking about where if you're just an opportunistic politician, you've been able to kind of slide because the problems, um, maybe they weren't that bad. Maybe the shit hadn't risen to the level that people were paying attention to it. But we're at a point where you can't really ignore a lot of these problems anymore and act like they're not happening. Yeah. I think that social media has changed so much that it's changed the dynamic in politics where, people can't get away with the same stuff they used to, you know, mm-hmm. like people ask me, um, was politics better, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. I'm not sure that the people 40 or 50 years ago were any less corrupt than the people today. Like, I think if anything, it's maybe the case that they were more corrupt, but today you notice it all, you see it all. So people can't get away with anything. You know, if someone is opportunistic, if someone puts some rules in place, like some of these mayors or governors, and then they don't follow the rules, everyone's going to see it. Like there's, you know, there are cameras everywhere. And they're even, and these people are even so, um, I guess, you know, um, out of their minds or whatever, like disconnected from society that they're taking pictures of themselves flouting the rules they're like shameless they're like they're gonna like ignore their own rules and then just take a picture of themselves and think it's okay yeah that's where i can't figure out if they're just shameless or you know it's like is it stupidity or and disconnect or is it truly just depravity and that they know they can get away with it they know that people are going to vote blue no matter what in california They are, they, for example, Gavin Newsom is a great example of this where he can, like the French laundry thing, it hurt him a little bit, but ultimately people are still going to vote for these people who might have rules for everybody else that they don't feel they have to follow. Or do they just feel like they're truly are betters and don't have to follow this stuff? Like, like they're, this doesn't apply to them either no matter what the answer is, it's horrible. Yeah. It's this vote blue, no matter who stuff that is like, where like, it doesn't matter who these people are. We're just going to vote for them because they're Democrats. And you know, like you shouldn't vote for Democrats or Republicans just because like, it's like, you should vote for people who are, who are actually going to respect human beings and do what they say. And when they don't do what they say, you should hold them accountable. And like, None of that is happening anymore, and it's it's really stunning. I think part of the problem you see on the left is that in some ways this mentality of like just vote blue no matter who or whatever, like sort of like the people say like blue MAGA almost, in <laughs> some ways that is more ingrained on the left than the Trumpism is on the right. Like on the right, yes, Trumpism is sort of steering the ship at this point, but – there's still a sense in which people like everyday people think of it as more like on the extreme, like the, they don't think that it's really what's ultimately the essence of the party. And it may be that it's becoming the essence of the party, that that's what it is. But on the left, it's just true that sort it's sort of like um, the Biden Democrats are the ones who are most in this like 
vote blue no matter who camp. And actually, the progressives on the left, the ones who are like actually still progressive and some in some ways very liberal still, um, they're the ones who are left on the sidelines. Yeah, you know, they they're definitely not, are. Yeah, they're not actually they're not actually like driving you know <laughs> driving the bus on on that. Um, in that party. So like, and they seem more left on the sidelines. I think they were, they were, I think a lot of them feel from what I can gather somewhat disillusioned by a lot of the promises that were made say around getting rid of school debt, you know, college debt, um, healthcare, just whatever they were kind of build back better. (laughs) A lot of these things that were, were, kind of ways to get progressives to vote for Biden, who they were, you know, I just think of that TikTok that is still stuck in my head from the election that went viral. And it was a young girl in her pajamas. And she was like, please don't make me vote for Joe Biden. Please don't make me vote for Joe Biden. And she's like, I don't want to vote for Joe Biden. And and I think so many people on the left felt that way. But the, the vote blue no matter who, the existential threat that they felt was there. And they all got on board. And then they were completely thrown under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like completely. Absolutely. And I, I used to get this question all the time because I was exploring a run for president as a libertarian. And people would say to me um, when I think like around the time when I decided I wasn't going to pursue it. They're like, well, who do you support? Do you support Donald Trump or Joe Biden? I'm like, I don't support either one. Like, I'm not like, um, I mean, it's not like I'm here to defend Republicans. Like, I'm not saying the Republican Party is good or the Republicans are doing great at, at anything. Really, they're doing terrible at so many things, which is why I left. The, which is which is why I left the Republican Party. You know, like I, I wasn't happy with the Republican Party, and I'm still not happy with them. Um, but you know, when you ask me, like, well, you've got to support. Joe Biden, don't you? Like, you know, he's going to help fix the system and restore America or whatever. And I'm like, no, he's not. What are, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, you really think Joe Biden is going to change, like, the status quo? Like, he he <laughs> is the status quo. He is the status quo. Like, this is the guy who put in place, like, like half of the policies that I'm like railing against every day on Twitter, Joe Biden put in place himself and bra- and bragged about it at one point in history. Um, and that includes a lot of criminal justice um, issues where like he was he had like that tough on crime period where like he put in place a lot of bad stuff um, that that hurt people um, mm-hmm. and, and hurt civil liberties. And, you know, so I'm not for Joe Biden. And like he was never going to change the essence of what's wrong with our system of government. Like I'm, I'm very steeped in this because I was in the middle of it in Congress, but like the fact is there is no legislative process anymore. The, Mm -hmm. you know, everything is run through like a few people at the top. You have the speaker of the house that decides essentially everything that goes on in the house. And unless you have a president who says enough is enough. Like if you don't run a democratic house, like a, I mean, representative in, in essence, not like a big, big D Democrat, but like a democratic representative process in the house, then um, I'm not going to sign that legislation. If you're just going to mm-hmm. like have the speaker of the house, write a bill and have it rubber stamped by members of Congress and then sent to my desk, I'm going to tell you I'm vetoing it. 
Right. If you, if you don't have a president who says that, nothing's going to change. And Joe Biden was never going to be that president. Joe Biden's not the president who says, hey, you know, the system is not working for people. It's time to change the system and, uh, and you know, and rework it so that it, he could do it. I mean, he has the power to do it um, because he can control what kind of legislation is signed ultimately and what's vetoed. And, and he can use his platform to talk about the actual structural problems right now with our government and how it's not serving the people, but he doesn't choose to do that stuff. I think he's just trying to slide by, hope that people hate Trump enough that, you know, whether it's him or um, Kamala or someone else, they can win again in 2024. And I think that's how he looks at it. Like, how can we just do just enough to keep our people in line and get by? And, that's why and I that's think it. it would be so crazy for just from a strategy perspective, even seeing what happened like with the recall election here, which was wildly unpopular with Gavin Newsom. But the minute Larry Elder started running as somebody who was kind of quote unquote MAGA, they could easily pivot away from all of Gavin's failings as governor, governor and whatever grievances rightful people may have had with him too. Oh, do you guys want another Trump? why the why the Republican Party, and I'm sure maybe someone can tell me, but it, I don't understand why they would risk running somebody who really, I thought for sure he would win for many reasons re-election, but in 2024, why you would risk that? Because it seems like this is someone people are so happy to vote against even if the voting against him is for somebody that's not great either yeah so i just that doesn't it seems like a weird strategy to well do me. you think do you think biden runs i don't know i mean and and i so i had many issues with kamala just from living in california and all the crap she did with the inmates making them fight fires for like two cents <laughs> and you know notorious i just i never liked her before she even went into her like VP run. Well, the and... Democrats, the Democrats didn't like her either. I mean, yeah. she, she, that's what was stunning about it. Like she ran in the, in the primary and did terribly. So like... <laughs> no. nobody liked her. Nobody really liked either. On the left, nobody, it was really like an establishment pick. And I think a lot of people were happy because they're like, see, the left wing is moderate. They picked this this moderate person and they wanted this moderate person. And it seems to me like the the house always wins. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like I don't know I don't know which way it could have gone that I I think maybe from a strategy point of view it was it was good to get the like kind of safe, stable Biden esque person. But now in the face of gas prices, inflation, like there's a lot that's gone down in a little over a year. I'd be very curious to know how people who voted for them, for him, are feeling about that. Uh, Voted for him as a lesser of two evils, you know, reluctantly. Yeah, well, the polling's um, polling's not good. I mean, it doesn't no. look... It's. I think it's as bad as Trump's polling ever was. So, like, it's not really... It's not really working for them. I don't know. Like, I... I I do wonder if Biden will run again. I mean, If he, it's Biden he, versus Trump, he I'm doesn't. going to walk into the ocean 
or leave America and yeah. watch this from afar. There's just yeah. no like as a comedian, I don't see any upside to this kind right. of right. You know you're gonna I mean? you're gonna move to Canada and vote for Trudeau, right? Like I'm it's gonna be sick of it's. I know it's ageist or whatever they want to accuse me of, but I always say like I don't want these olds running the country, and they're like, oh well, look at AOC and Gavin, they're young, whatever. But it, I, I don't, I don't think that. I feel like there's this, this is our choice. Like there has to be, Yeah. <laughs> there's got to be other people who can do that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know, two people over 80 or, or whatever yeah, it like is. And, approaching 80. And, and you know, no offense to people over 80. I'm like, my dad's over 80. There are lots of great people over 80. It's just the, <laughs> the issue is, um, you know, maybe we want someone as president who is at the prime of their life where they have the energy to do all this stuff and, and uh, you know, address the seriousness of the situation. You know, there's like – you're not going to put someone like Biden in there who's going to like revolutionize the system and say like, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to – because it, it just, it's just not in his nature. And we all know that like there's a certain point in your life where you're just not – you're not thinking about revolutionizing the system. He's not like, he's not Can like, Hey, you even revolutionize not, the system though. Is it, is, is, yes. once you're in it, is, is there still the potential for that? Yes. I mean, it can only be done. There's only two ways to really change the system. I mean, I think it can be done from the inside by a few, like it, it require a few very powerful people to have noble intentions, which is like highly unlikely. It like never happens. But for example, someone who is the speaker of the house or the Senate majority leader or the president of the United States, like those three positions, you could really upend the whole system if you wanted to and set it back on the right path. Because, because of our system of checks and balances and separation of powers, any one person in those positions could really dramatically change the system if they wanted to. In, in um, what they, way could they, they change it? Because they they could basically bring things to a, a stop if others aren't willing to restore some sense of rightness, some sense of fairness, some sense of um, democracy even, or representative government. Like, like if you're the Speaker of the House, you could, for example, say – we're going to allow um, a lot of bills onto the House floor and everyone's mm. going to participate and you're going to offer amendments freely on the House floor mm. and take lots of votes and put lots of people on the record. There's lots of ways in which we can essentially bring people together in a dynamic sort of discovery process that will help reduce a lot of the partisanship and animosity, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it requires someone at the top to do it. Like, mm-hmm. It's it shouldn't surprise anyone, for example, that in Congress, these members of Congress are just go on TV or Twitter and basically yell at each other and call each other names. They don't have any other work to do. Like, what do you think? <laughs> like, what do you think they're like? What do you think they're doing? Like this? I don't know. I people, because really people no say idea. to me like, because people say to me, Justin, um, isn't it like unfortunate that you're not in Congress anymore because like you can't do X, Y, or Z? I couldn't do X, Y, or Z when I was in Congress. Like those things are not open to members of Congress anymore because it's so centralized. The power is so concentrated at the top that I have the same amount of power as a member of Congress right now. I know that because I served in Congress. Mm-hmm. I can do the same exact things they can do. 
I can I can tweet. <laughs> That's right. I can tweet and that I can That is our representative democracy. <laughs> I I can do the same exact things. I can tweet and I can go on TV. Like people will invite me on TV to talk about stuff and I can tweet. That is identical to what a member of Congress can do. And anyone who thinks that they can do more is fooling themselves. And the the sad part is they want you to think they can do more. So the the most, you know, irrelevant member of Congress will want you to think still that they can do a lot because they're going home and they're trying to sell to their constituents that they're hard at work passing bills and amending this and that. But it's almost all a show. It's like a theater performance. Mm-hmm. Even the bills they pass, they don't even write those bills. They might pass a bill and they didn't even write it and they didn't read it and it's their own bill. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's given to them by someone in leadership and it's strategically given to the people who have tough districts or whatever. Like the whole thing is a performance. And mm-hmm. and so if you had a Speaker of the House who said enough with the performance art, like we're going to ha- actually run a Congress, a lot of things would change. You'd You'd actually weaken the power of the president too. And similarly, you could have a president who's really powerful um, because that's a powerful position who says – Hey, if you're not going to run your legislative body like it's supposed to run, I'm not signing the legislation. And they people say, "Oh, are you really going to shut down the government?" And the president just says, "Yeah." Like if you don't know, send me send me the stuff that's actually gone through the democratic process or I'm not signing it, and I'll use my platform every day to point out how corrupt you guys are, how mm-hmm. crooked what you're doing is, how unrepresentative, how anti-democratic it is. That's what we need in a president. And Joe Biden was never going to be that president, which is what I explained to people, you know, uh, during that election season. I was like, he was never going to be that guy. So why should I support him? Like, what, what is the point of supporting a guy who's going to keep the status quo going? And, and if you keep it going, another Trump's going to come along, except the next Trump's going to be more dangerous. Like, how, what's the other way to revolutionize the, the well, process or democracy? The other way is one we don't want to have, which is the people just like rise up against the system and say like <laughs> we've we've had it. So like mm-hmm. the, these these people ultimately in government have a choice, and I think that it's it's not um, wrong to think that they could frustrate the public so much that things get out of hand. And I, I don't want to see that in this country because I don't think right. that stuff is good. I think it's we're like, seeing it. yeah, we're seeing it. I, I think that, um, we, to the extent we can have, uh, a government that is, has peaceful transitions of power and where everyone gets along and agrees on the, the system, the basic system, even though they disagree on policies and priorities, um, I think, that's the thing we want to have. Like we just uh, a smooth running system where people are not constantly frustrated that they can't get their voice heard. But if you constantly tell them like, we don't care about you, we're not interested, we're going to flout the rules. We'll do whatever we want. Um, a few people are going to run the whole show. Like what are people at home to believe other than you just have an oligarchy and that's right. that. And like, well, why should we respect that? Like, why should anyone respect that? I don't and, think anybody and, does. And so, I mean, well, that who system is respects these institutions right now. Well, that system's do- doomed to fail, and I think that's like a a much worse route than someone like in Congress or in the White House waking up and saying, like, "Hey, I'm the one with the power," and I mean the leaders specifically. But they're you know, all like they're not. Years. 
years old. I know. You got Pelosi and Schumer, <laughs> McConnell, and, you know, McCarthy's as big a crook as anyone. So, like, you've got all of this crookery over there. And so, yeah. like, I'm not sure what the ultimate solution is, like, in terms of how do we address this problem. But, um, but I do, I do spend my time now trying to educate people about this. Like, this is even this, you know, this discussion we're having. Hopefully, people are listening and they're saying, like, I didn't know it was that bad or corrupt. And then they might ask me a little bit about it. I think that can be helpful in changing tone and, and changing ideas and making people hold their members of Congress more accountable. But I don't know. It's like a, it's like a real mess right now. Yeah. It seems like a mess. There's just, you have um, a really agitated population and a dysfunctional government. It's never historically a great, a great, <laughs> a great recipe. Yeah. Shall <laughs> like, we, uh, Oh, I was I was gonna say, should we go to another caller yeah. or two? All right, let's uh, let's go to D. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, uh-huh. D. Hey. So, uh, first of all, I, I want to slightly disagree on the left being a little bit more tribal because I definitely think that the one thing I appreciate about the left, and I'm not one of those Biden all the way people, is that you do have like leftist podcasters who are like critical of. Biden uh, versus, you know, like Justin is one of the people who is like very few people who is openly critical of Trump. That's like big on the right. And I guess my question is, what exactly what are your thoughts on um, right wing authoritarianism, uh, Justin mm-hmm. and, and Bridget? What are your thoughts on um, sort of right wing um, elitism? Because I noticed that Mm-hmm. When it comes to elitism, people are very good at talking about like CNN looking down on, I guess, white working class people. But like Fox, like does not exactly portray like people who are working class of color in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Justin, I guess my question would be, um, I, you know, I was glad to see that you and, and people on Reason Magazine kind of covered the Amir Locke case. And mm-hmm. it's been so striking to me that there's all the support for you know, the, the can't Canadian freedom envoy and all that. But then when it comes to thinking like, like things like police brutality, the same people who are criticizing the left for vax mandates are largely not present in conversations on police brutality. So I guess those yeah. are kind of my two questions. No, that's, those are great questions, D. Well, I, I, first of all, I a hundred percent agree that there's massive bias here. Like people, people focus and they're hyper-focused on, their own issues and their own concerns. And it's hard to say exactly what drives that hyper-focus. Like I, I don't think as much as the left sometimes portrays it as like a race thing on the right, I don't think that that's actually what it is. I think it's more of a, like some kind of nationalism and populism that is uh, bigger than a race issue. It's not like, it's not like just white people versus other people as it's often portrayed by the left that that's what the right is doing and i say this as someone who interacted with republicans all the time and i was very critical of what they were doing and i'm very strongly against the more authoritarian leaning um direction of the republican party these days and the nationalistic populist stuff populism is great if it's channeled towards some actual policy or it's channeled toward something productive it is not great when it's just anger 
um, and grievance culture um, directed sort of like uh, sort of ambiguously at the left. Um, and I do think that there's a lot of this on the right now where it's just like owning the libs or whatever. Just mm-hmm. like we just don't like those people. Those people are dangerous to our country and our system. And so we're against them. And it's not really actually very clearly defined. So so for me, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm concerned about that stuff, which is why I left the Republican Party. And uh, I don't think that's the way forward. I really believe in libertarianism, which – is a philosophy of human cooperation. That's like, that's what I believe in. I believe in humans working together and people with different viewpoints coming together. Like that's, I think what makes libertarianism unique is that it's really not um, policy centered as much as it is, as it is process centered. It's like very much about like, what is the system we can create or, or have as a society so that we can all express our own views and pursue our own priorities peacefully, and that's that's what I'd like to 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 see um, going forward, and that's what I'm working toward. And, and you know, you mentioned Fox News. I I watch all the networks, and it's unbelievable how different the programming is on Fox News versus um, CNN. And how much people will cover one thing on one channel and something mm-hmm. totally different on another. And a mirror lock will be, will be a big situation in one broadcast and one network. And then on another network, it's never even mentioned. And same with the truckers. Um, yeah. People are like picking and choosing what they care about. And these are all civil liberties issues. Like if you're um, if you're a person who cares about the Second Amendment, I don't know why you wouldn't care about – uh, police busting into homes, and this is this has happened. I mean, there's another story I I tweeted about today, where police are sometimes busting into homes in the middle of the night, and um, you know someone with a gun is acting up in self defense, and then they're being um, accused of uh, trying to murder the police, or you know, like if someone busts into your home in the middle of the night. Yeah, you might actually grab your gun and fight yeah. back. You're not going to know is it is it police? And then people are like, "Well, if you know it's the police, you shouldn't like shoot back or whatever." Like, how do you know it's the police? Like, don't you think someone who's breaking in who wants to hurt you might say this is the police? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like they might just say it so that you don't defend yourself. So, you know, that's a no second. Warren Seaman Yeah, yeah, that is. And so this is a Second Amendment issue. That and a, and a Fourth Amendment issue and a Fifth Amendment issue. So these are like issues that people on the right should care about, but a lot of times they don't, and it's it's hard to like understand that. Um, but like the the bias is astonishing. I I was critical of like people are making this uh, like all this fuss about this Durham filing, and um, and there's some interesting stuff in there, but like it's not nearly as egregious as what's happened under the Patriot Act or yeah. FISA and F- especially FISA 702. And when I point that out, uh, people are like, you know, how do you know we don't care about both things? Like we care a lot about this and we care about that. But then if you look them up, like and you do a search, you'll see that they never wrote about the Patriot Act. They never cared about it at all. They're just saying it now. They care about this because it looks like it's, uh, you know, a political thing against Trump. But as far as like, unconstitutional surveillance is concerned they don't care at all you know some people do but you know i think by and large the people who get all wrapped up in this stuff they're saying it because they're biased and i think this stuff has to stop on the right and the left 
But anyways, that's that, a long answer. I don't know, Bridget, I don't know if you remember what he asked you specifically, but. I don't remember, but I was thinking too about, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I said the left is more tribal or which one of us said that, but I definitely don't feel like the left is more tribal. And I think on the right, uh, I see both, both, both parties being equally tribal. No, are you going to say, are you going to say both sides? Cause then people get on your case. For oh saying... yeah, you can't say both sides. Um, <laughs> right. And on the on the right wing, you do have like the never Trumpers who push back and and places like the Dispatch and stuff. So I think there's there's also that ecosystem that exists on the right where there's the p- p- predominant whatever kind of wing, and then the people pushing back against it, like on the left, which I think is healthy and great. And I love listening to progressive podcasts and and never Trump podcasts or whatever you want to call them. Um, but I don't remember the question you asked me. So yeah, my question was just more around like the, the even like framing um, of elites and everything. That, oh, like, right, right. Like that, because like, you know, I even even with the Rogan conversation, regardless of what you think, it, it was just interesting to me that like, if you're an elite and you're anti quote unquote woke, people don't like no one ever calls Elon like Bill Gates is somehow an elite, but like Elon Musk because he says he's not woke, no one ever will say, oh yeah, elite <laughs> Elon Musk, even though he's like the richest guy in the world. So I just I don't know. Yeah, I think um, what I notice on the right, and I don't watch a lot of Fox. They do. I feel like the right misses so many opportunities to reach out to potential people who would be conservative in communities. And, and I see this, there's like a whole great group of people who are trying to make inroads and they're conservatives and in the black community, but they are consistently frustrated with the messaging that comes out of places like Fox and people, because it is so alienating. And instead of doing like the outreach and the work and going into these communities and actually trying to persuade and get votes and hear what some of these communities want, there is like this sense that they'll even just like, I saw a lot of conservatives um, online right after the Super Bowl being like, and this is why you won't get our vote. They're like, this is why the black community consistently votes for Democrats, even if they might agree with some of the stuff because of the way that like the conversation happens around something like fucking hip hop, you know, it's just like <laughs> ridiculous. And I do think a lot of the, when I kind of stumbled into the culture war, I would always joke, like I was trying to do this stand up routine about how you'd go be like, hey, why is the left pushing back on free speech? And then down in the comments, you'd see some like racist shit. And you're like, oh, there is, you know, a, a lot of kind of, blatant racism that's the, like un, in the underbelly of and I'm not saying it's the majority but there's grievance too and the thing about grievance like I watch Fox and when I do see it I'm like oh my god it's just like a grievance factory just but this the same with CNN there's like manufacturing grievance all day long I think the media is so responsible for so much of the grievance culture that we have on both sides. I know people hate it when I say that, but 
there's a lot of grievance on the left too. And it's, it, it, both sides are speaking to the kind of populist people. I just think that Fox actually does a better job of faking a care for the working class that the left is not doing anymore. So whether either side is actually doing anything to improve the conditions of working class, like I don't understand why maternity leave isn't a right wing platform. That doesn't make any sense to me. They're always like, you know, we need more families and we need to breed more and we need more kids and we need to like care about the family, but they don't seem to give a crap about like making sure a woman can have great, you know, time off with after she has a baby. And that seems like it would be a no brainer. So I don't necessarily, I think they're, they do a better job, you know, faking the concern for whether or not it's real or not. I think that they're better at pretending to be kind of like one of the working class than on the left, which there is kind of a smug elitism, whether they mean to or not, there, there is a sense that they're kind of talking down to you at me. And I say that as somebody who is like a waitress for a long time and would listen to some, sometimes the way that the people would talk about even like on, in the media, the working class, it just felt like, like, do you guys know anyone who's working class at all? <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. I, I, uh, I appreciate that. Justin is definitely principled, even though I'm on the left, I appreciate that Justin's a principled libertarian. And I do appreciate that even though, uh, Bridget, uh, you seem to be, I guess, more right leaning that you aren't one of those people who pretends to be a centrist, but only calls out like the, the left, you call out both sides. So thank you for taking my call. Thanks, Thank Steve. You. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I watch all of this stuff. I mean, it's almost part of my job, like, just to pay attention to what's going on on Fox News and CNN and all that. I got I have to stay, you know, in the know, I guess, about, you know, how they're, how they're talking, what they're talking about. And I think that what happens a lot of times on the left, on, you know, networks that are on the left is they... They resent the the fact that you might challenge them. Like it's it's almost like don't you know like we're experts and we're talking to experts and we are people who are educated and all that and um you know you're going to challenge us or some like you know some riffraff is going to come up here and tell us that we're doing the wrong thing or like we don't know what we're talking about. I think they like really they they just give off the sense of resentment about being questioned. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that is something they haven't really reckoned with. Like they haven't really looked themselves in the mirror and seen like, well, how, why are we giving off this vibe that like, we don't care about people that, that we, they just act smug. Um, you know, people, if people don't agree with us, it must be because they're stupid. Yeah. Um or they're or they're racist or they're evil or something like that. And and this is again like I think I mentioned it earlier like the sense on the left and again it's not everyone but it is like the talking heads and like a lot of people on social media um who are not again a majority of the population to be clear. But the sense that if you don't agree with their values you're a bad person. 
And yeah. that to me is just really antithetical to what America is about. Like America is a place where we do bring our different values and ideas to things. And actually, I think what they're not thinking about on the left is they're fueling a lot of this right-wing nationalism and populism where that's also like a sort of like we don't care about your values thing either. Like increasingly there's this national conservative movement on the right and they are really about like, hey, we're going to force our values on other people too. They, mm-hmm. they think like America is supposed to have these values and we should mm-hmm. impose it on people because from their perspective, if the left is going to impose it, why don't they impose it the other way? Right. Like, that's right. how they're viewing it. And like, so they're, so both parties have become less libertarian in that right. sense. And yeah. And I think I understand too, why people would think I'm more right leaning, even though they have no idea how I vote or what I believe or anything. But I, I think from a public perspective, I go harder against the left, but it's like, because I was of the left, it's like, I, I feel more capable of criticizing them because I know them more. And it's like, making fun of my family or criticizing my family. Whereas the right, I just haven't really, um, I, I don't, I've never really given enough of a shit about that party. Yeah. To I, be like, like I'll criticize there. There's so much hypocrisy on the right. And I mean, to, as someone who's been in the space and has been attacked by pretty much every group online, I will say I am far more terrified of the far right than anything else. And I mean the far right, like yeah. uh, I, I've seen the the rhetoric over there and been attacked by groups who are, um, I think, legitimately dangerous and aggrieved and fueling that kind of grievance. And look, I, I live in L.A. where I saw a lot of rage like in that summer of July 2020. And this is a lot of stuff, too, that is it's being just like fueled, you know, by our media and nobody seems to have any interest in dialing it down. Everybody seems to want to like keep turning it up to 11. And then these forces start playing off one another and further radicalizing one another. And that's like what you said, everyone's become less libertarian, but it seems to me that everyone also has become less everyone's become more radicalized. We're on the right. Everyone we're on the left. Everyone on the right is a fascist and on the right, everybody on the left is a communist. And while obviously we need like, these are existential threats and we have to dig our heels in and, yeah. and it, I don't, I'm not sure how you dial this back. You know, right. it's a problem and, I've been trying to get my mind around. And most Americans are not on the extremes like that. Like, but if you ask someone on Twitter who's like really active in politics, or someone who's active like in the media, like the you know the so-called mainstream media, I think they really think things like forty percent of Republicans are like you know nationalists or some some kind of like you know they're they <laughs> they are uh, maybe racist in some way at least, even if not like overtly racist or. Or there are people on the right who think that 40% of the Democrats are like, you know, diehard Marxist yeah. or something <laughs> like, like, you know, they're all, you're all, they're all there to like enforce like the most egregious like um, policies and politics on your kids and all that. And that's just not true. That's like not the world we live in, actually. 
um, there are those people on the you know the fringes of each party, but like it's not the majority of people. And I I think that unfortunately the media play it up um, that way. And you know you mentioned calling out your own side or what's perceived as your own side more, and I totally understand that. Like I understand how you might feel frustrated by the left and might want to call them out more because I feel in many respects the same way about the right. You know, like I'm a guy who grew up believing that the Republicans believed in like X, Y, and Z things. I like, oh, they believe in limited government and individual liberty and economic freedom. They believe in these things. I grew up believing that they believed those things. And then when you get to the, um, you know, the highest levels where you're like in Congress, now you're here, you made it to Congress and you're going to affect change and you're working with these other people who call themselves Republicans. And then you find out that it's all like just a bunch of um, – I hate to word, use the word baloney because I I get mocked every time I use it. But it's like a bunch of baloney. <laughs> I think it's a bunch of – people are like you got to swear more and like not use baloney. But anyways – great. Okay. So it's uh, – it's, uh, let me say total baloney. Okay. So, you know, when, when you get there and you realize that the people around you don't actually believe the things that you thought they believed – um, yeah, you want to call them out. You want to call them out because I never believed that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were like staunch advocates of limited government or individual liberty or economic freedom or free markets or whatever. I was never like thinking like, oh, these are the ones – these are the people who are totally for it. The the Republicans are the ones who said they were for that stuff. So yeah, like I'm going to be pretty pissed when they are, when they don't actually live up to it. And mm-hmm. and when people say like, well, Justin, you were really hard on Trump, yeah, because Trump is the one saying things like, "I'm going to end the wars," mm-hmm. and unconstitutional surveillance is so horrible, and you know we're spending too much money. And then he flat out did all the opposite of what he said. You know, he kept mm-hmm. he expanded the Afghanistan war. More bombs were dropped than ever under Donald Trump. More people were killed. Um, he uh, spent money like crazy. He signed surveillance laws, like reauthorizations, the worst, most egregious surveillance laws he signed. So, like, yeah, I'm going to call him out. Like, you know, let me know when Biden claims he's against unconstitutional surveillance or, you know, when when he does that, you can call him out too. But it's Trump who is pretending. And I think it's natural for me or you or anyone else to be extremely frustrated with our own side when they don't live up to the values we thought they had. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Patriot Act is always a big one for me because I see the right right now and they're like, they're freezing money of these truckers and like they're the donations and they're free. I'm like my bank account in 2007 got frozen under the Patriot account under the Patriot Act. Cause I moved too many times and they had, they were under no obligation to tell me why they froze my account. I just finally got to the bottom of it because I begged one of the people. I had like, mind you, I had like $7. I didn't have a lot of money. So I needed <laughs> what was in that bank account. Yeah. And I had moved a bunch of different times. And so apparently it was sketchy and they froze my bank account and they were like, oh, we don't have to tell you why it's the Patriot Act. I'm like, no one gives a shit about this. Like, I I understand we're slipping into maybe more ideological territory with kind of freezing bank accounts and and stopping funds. 
but we've already been here in America. <laughs> like, yep. we already, the structure's already in place for them to do whatever the hell they want, whenever they want, and they don't even have to tell you why. They don't even owe you an explanation. Right, and then the worst part, again, is that these people who are complaining about it now, the ones in the political world, are very often the people who voted for this stuff. Like they, like I'll see someone on Twitter or on TV, and they're saying, "Like, can you believe all this stuff going on?" Like Devin um, Nunez, like he, like he's coming on, or Nunes is how you pronounce it, I guess. He's coming on TV, and he's saying things like, um, "You know, this surveillance is terrible." He's, he's the guy who's like the architect of a lot of this stuff. So, like, give me give me a freaking break. So let's go to um, let's let's get through a couple more callers quick mystery cat mystery cat is that right they're probably sleeping mystery cat's gone mystery i think mystery cat forgot that um he or she or they were were on uh (laughs) were on the call list so let's go to elias Elias. Hi. Thank you, Justin and Bridget. Sorry, I have to find the unmute button. And uh, yeah, Mystery Cat's going to be a tough guest to follow, so, so bear with me. You should uh, just be able to touch your picture to unmute. This is my note. <laughs> to, to the yeah, if, if the developers are listening, we can. <laughs> yeah, but you can hear me fine now, so I, uh-huh. I don't need to meow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so thanks for your time today. I had uh, two quick questions for you both. Um, you know, feel free to, to address them. Justin, you've touched on the topic of surveillance a bit today. And so I was wondering if you could explain to me and to the audience the Patriot Act and specifically national security letters, sneak and peek warrants, FISA, and how they violate the Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights of subjects. I know it's it's more of a deep dive, but I think, you know, folks who haven't done a lot of the reading might appreciate it. Um, and yours truly for for the recap. Uh, and, and the First Amendment rights of tech company employees who receive them and, you know, are faced with gag orders. Uh, secondly, I'm an Arab American veteran. And, you know, I see the left's obsession with race as America's own instance of sectarianism. That hasn't worked so well in the Middle East, hasn't worked so well in Northern Ireland, not in Rwanda, nor in the Balkans. Uh, so just curious about your take. You, you know, I noticed you commented about that earlier as well. So thanks. Uh, again, Bridget, questions are open to you as well. So the, sorry, how, how clarify, we... clarify the second question. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess to, to your point about things, unfortunately, it, it, it sounded like you didn't have a really optimistic take on our future. I still think there's a chance for revival. But one thing I'm definitely sour on is, and again, I'm, I'm an independent. I would have voted for Al Gore over Bush, but today I consider myself a, a Republican. And a big reason is the left's obsession with race, seeing race everywhere, Mm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to seeing Americanism everywhere from many come one. And I guess Mm. for us, you know, the kids of, you know, of immigrants, what what I really loved about the country, what I still love about it is that you can get anywhere regardless of your background. You know, and and in the Middle East, for example, as everyone on the call probably knows, you had checkpoint killings. You know, you'd make it up to, to a checkpoint, you'd show your ID. They'd take a look and say, okay, first name Muhammad, you're probably a Sunni. Ali, you're probably a Shia. George, uh-oh, you're probably a Christian. And, you know, and ditto for the Kurds or the Turkmen's. But what's so insidious about what's going on here, right, is it's you don't even make it to that checkpoint if you're just looking at the pigment level, right? You cast into a basket even before then. And so mm-hmm. that's something I'm definitely not a big fan of, but just yeah. curious about your take. 
Thanks. Thanks, Lies. So on the on the first question, I'm going to punt a little bit um, because I think we don't have enough time in this conversation to get into all the details on um, f- the various Fourth Amendment violations that are going on. I will say that one of the tricks that the intelligence community uses routinely, and we saw this recently with the revelations about the CIA, that the CIA had some kind of um, collection program, and then they were they were essentially querying things and um, violating people's rights, and we don't know all the details of it. One thing that we do know is that these intelligence agencies use terms of art to confuse people. Like they, they'll talk about who's a target, and they'll talk about collection, and they'll talk about something being incidental. And these all have very specific meanings to the intelligence community, and they use these words intentionally to confuse people at home so it looks like that nothing they're doing is actually wrong. Um, I read that response from the CIA about their own incident, you know, where they were called out for spying on people and throughout the response, they are using these terms very deliberately to mislead people. Like they're saying, you know, we do all the collection in compliance with the fourth amendment. Uh, but they're then ignoring the fact that they're querying things that, that have been collected um, in, in very clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. I think both the collection and the querying is a constitutional violation, but, you know, they uh, feel like they have some precedent, at least on the collection side, so that's what they rest their their stance on. In any case, the bottom line is this incidental collection problem is one of the biggest problems we're facing, um, where the government is basically collecting uh, massive amounts of data on the public and they're doing it while targeting foreign actors. So they'll say like, Oh, we're only targeting foreigners. We're not targeting Americans, but in the process of targeting foreigners, they're collecting all sorts of data on Americans. And then once they have the data, they're saying, well, this data was incidentally collected. It's not like our fault that we have it. What are we going to do? Like, how are we going to get the foreign data without collecting this data? And then they are going and querying that data on Americans. So they're like, they're like, well, it's sort of an accident that we have this data. We didn't violate the Fourth Amendment to get it because we weren't targeting people. We weren't targeting Americans to get this data. But now we have it. So what do you want us to do? Pretend it doesn't exist? We're just going to query it and find out whatever we want. And this is going on, um, and it goes on in multiple programs. And um, and some of them are not authorized by statute. They're just by executive order. So um, I think. I just want to say that about, uh, you know, intelligence, um, you know, violations and violations of the Fourth Amendment done by the intelligence community. Uh, as for your second uh, question, yeah, I I agree with you that what makes this country such a beautiful place is that people can come from anywhere and they can come from any background as my, di- my dad did as a Palestinian refugee as my mom did as a Syrian immigrant, they can come from any background and they can be Americans and live the full American life. And they can um, interact in the same way as any other American. They can, uh, you know, their rights are protected. This doesn't mean that everyone has just an easier life or this, this doesn't mean that there isn't still racism. There is all that stuff. This doesn't mean that there's not still discrimination, including by the government at times. But the problem is when you look at America compared to other countries, we have such a beautiful place and so many people 
on the left focus on the negatives about America and not about not enough on the beauty of America. And for me as the son of immigrants, I like to focus on the beauty of America. I I love to focus on the fact that this is a wonderful country where anyone can come, doesn't matter what their last name is, doesn't matter what their religious background is, and they can come here and they can be successful. And so when I got into Congress, I always presented as I am so thankful and blessed to be here and grateful to America for what it's provided my family, the opportunity it's provided my family. And I see a lot of other politicians often on the left who are also from immigrant backgrounds who present the opposite statements. They say, uh, you guys tried to keep us down and now we've risen up. Now we're in Congress and now we're in charge, you know, so deal with it. And I think that's totally the wrong attitude to have. You know, and it's not helpful. I don't think it's conducive to um, winning people over to your views. I don't think it's conducive to winning people over to immigrants either. And we're blessed to have a country of immigrants, and um, and we're blessed to have such a great country. Amen. Also, yeah. Yeah. Just always give people the benefit of the doubt and try to see commonalities instead of differences. Uh, th- thank you both for your time today and for yeah. those questions for those answers. Thanks, Elias. Well, Bridget, I know you, we got to wrap it up, but um, you, how how are things going? I know you're. I just wanted to ask. You know, you are what over? Are you over thirty weeks pregnant now? Uh, thirty on Friday. Yeah. Is is this your first child? Yeah, it was a big surprise because they told me I was in menopause and then I got pregnant. Like I, they thought I was in early menopause, and in June told me that and um then you know we kind of came to terms with all of it and we were like should we try really hard or no and I mean I remember very clearly sitting on the beach with my husband and we were so in acceptance we're like okay we and we had been home visiting my family and saw my siblings with all their kids and we're like we're good <laughs> we're good. We'll have a lot of money. We'll travel. We'll still have our great life. We love each other. We were late bloomers. And, and so we ended up um, being really okay with that. And lo and behold, I was pregnant Yeah. <laughs> while we were having that conversation. And, it, and is it, is being a mom something you wanted throughout your life? No, I mean, it no. wasn't, I have, you know, this is a conversation that almost deserves its own hour. I think I, I've been thinking a lot about this stuff and I really was, I was really, I really relate to a lot of the young folks who are, who are kind of this anti-natalist movement. They sounded like me in my twenties. Like I, I was <laughs> like, the world is ending. The, the polar bears are all dying. And the, I had the climate anxiety and, um, I was definitely feeling like, you know, the AOC kind of like, we have seven years to live or whatever it was. Yeah. And I don't know, I got older and still wasn't really convinced. There did seem to be institutional failures. There did seem, it did seem to be harder to get things like a home and, um, and there was, there did, did seem to be like a, you know, perhaps some tipping point maybe. But at the end of the day, I met my husband and fell in love. And then 
I could see having a family. I never wanted like a kid just for kids sake. I always wanted a family if I wanted anything at all. Um, and at that point I had an ectopic pregnancy right away, which was really hard. And then they were like, come back in six months and we'll reevaluate and talk about fertility and what you can do. And if you want to like go the IVF route and start that process. And six months from my ectopic pregnancy was March of 2020. So we yeah. lost a year basically. And by the time we went back, my numbers weren't great. And we were, uh, I think at that point I was upset and I didn't have any regrets about not having a child because I would have wanted to have one with Jaron. But um, now that I'm pregnant, it's been just, a, you know, there's a lot of, it's so wild. It's just, a, it's a wild, I talk a lot about narrative whiplash just in the media, but talk about like narrative whiplash in my own life. It's just been I went from talking to my therapist about my feelings about menopause to like processing the fact that I'm pregnant in two months and I'm excited and nervous and all the things. And, um, it weirdly gave me a lot of hope. You know, I, I, I feel like when I, I, I don't feel anxious about bringing a kid into the world and, I still think we live in one of the best countries. I still think there's so much opportunity. I still believe we objectively have more than every generation before us in terms of medicines and opportunities. And she's being born into a very, um, you know, as as a it's a girl. So as as a woman, mm -hmm. she's being born into I think a time when she'll have more opportunity than women traditionally have. And I I have a lot of faith in humanity, despite my days of nihilism and perhaps feelings of you know seeing what's happening in the dysfunction. And right now, I still think that we've persisted through so much and the human spirit is so resilient and creative that if I focus on that, then I can, I don't know. I still, I still think, and I see like the younger kids and they're so, I mean, they're struggling right now post pandemic, but it is funny. Like my friend posted um, this picture there, he shared a picture with me and it was, uh, he's six and it said something like, if you could change the world, what would you do? And it was like, get rid of all the masks. And then it said, and how would you do it? And he said, <laughs> become a part of the government. And I was like, <laughs> they were like, become the government. And I was like, I really hope this entire generation of pandemic kids grows up and is like all libertarian. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. That was funny. Yeah, I, I just hope they're all libertarians and I hope that they're all, there does seem to be, I guess someone was telling me too that under a certain age, they all kind of identify as independents. They're, they're <laughs> like yeah. us, they just they have no alliance to either tribe. So it's a very strange time to be pregnant. Um, but I think that I'm still very, I feel, I feel very grateful most of the time. Yeah. Most all of the time. Yeah, I think no. that 
gratitude is where I end up landing. I try to bookmark my day with it because I think it always gives me perspective. Even if I was drowning in some Twitter nonsense and I feel nihilistic at the end of the day, there's still just read some history and be write a gratitude list. I have running water. I've traveled over the world enough too to know that we have it amazingly good here in America for uh, many of us. And there's obviously still work to do, but we still have so many resources. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I'm very hopeful actually, despite, you know, my criticisms of the system and, and what's going on with the two parties. I'm very hopeful. Um, I think that we're living in the best time in human history. I think yeah. we're living, we're living in the best country in human history, the best time in human history. And I really do envy my kids a lot, actually, the world that they'll have, you know, because, you know, I'm still young enough and you're still young enough, but I think they're really going to experience some amazing stuff um, in the future. And I think they'll have more freedoms than we do today, like the way they express themselves. So I am hopeful about that and, and, um, and happy. So I want to say thank you for, for being on. I know like, getting you onto this platform uh where it's not the it's not the usual uh platform coming out to call in but i really do appreciate it that you downloaded the app and and uh and joined us and i actually do have news i mean i just saw that um uh the android version of Colin is coming out tomorrow so nice. so people who have androids will be happy about that and allegedly there's going to be integration with apple Podcasts and spotify via rss so so hopefully more people will be able to hear this and and hear our conversation too. So I just want to say, great. yeah, I just want to say thank you again. And, thank you. Um, and sorry to, to sorry to, to take so much time away from no. from your husband and, and oh no, uh, he's working. I just want to go make him dinner because he works <laughs> yeah. late. He works with um, addicts and teens, and like his job is way harder than mine. And I just when he has his late night, I'm like a trad wife. I want I want him to come home to like a nice dinner because I know it's his long day. Yeah. So well I, re- we I appreciate it and we'll catch up and um you know congratulations again on the baby Thank you. and maybe we'll catch up again after uh, the baby's yeah, born. So definitely. All I right. love talking to you. Thank you for yeah. everything you do. Thanks Bridget. Take care. Bye. Bye.